Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jason Stark. Jason, of course, the longtime baseball writer, columnist, and author. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JasonST. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Ross, it is my pleasure. I'm, I'm honored to be number 80. <laughs> well, we're honored to have you. And Jason, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. You know, Ross, I'm one of those lucky people. Uh, who was doing exactly what I always dreamed of doing since, since the time I was like 10 years old. I, I am not making this up. Uh, I love sports. I especially love baseball. Uh, my mom was a writer. She had lots of writer friends. And, you know, at, at a really ridiculously young age, uh, it, it dawned on me this would be a really cool thing to do to be a sports writer writing about baseball. And I you know, I, I tell the story all the time. I swear it's true. I have witnesses. I used to go to games as a kid and bring my binoculars, and I would turn around and not look at the field. I would train those binoculars on the press box and try to figure out what the heck everybody was doing up there, because that's what I wanted to do. It's where I wanted to be someday. And I have no idea how the heck this happened, but I am eternally grateful that it did. And how old were you when you got your first beat job? I think about this. I was 27. I, mean, I, I, I covered a little baseball from the time I was 23. 23 sounds right. But um, I got hired by the Philadelphia Inquirer to cover the Phillies when I was 27. So you're 27 years old, but at this point, not only has the game changed in that time, but just how media is disseminated has obviously changed as well. I'm curious if you could go back and... Just a little bit, just a little bit. But I'm curious if you could go back and tell that rookie writer, that 27-year-old guy, would you change anything? Would you do anything different? What would you tell that guy? You know, I would probably tell him not to think he knew what he, as much as he thought he knew back then, because... I've never stopped learning stuff about baseball and about covering baseball any day since then, you know, and um, to get thrown into covering the Phillies in Philadelphia in that era at 27, it was an incredible honor for somebody who grew up in Philadelphia. And it was incredible pressure because of the, the greatness of the other people who covered it. And I, I mean, I know it made me better and it made me tougher and it made me stronger. Um, but I wish I knew then what I, I wish I'd known what I didn't know then. Right. I didn't know that then <laughs> that, that makes no sense, but that's, that's my answer. And I'm sticking to it. Yes, we all wish we had the benefit of hindsight, I think, with things, uh, most things. That's uh, that's very true. But you did just have the opportunity to do something neat. You were serving as a member of the Veterans Committee for the Hall of Fame. So I wanted to ask you about that process just a little bit, if you don't mind telling me how that process works. Sure. I, you know, I have to be careful um, because this is, uh, you know, we, we swear an oath of confidentiality when we agree to serve on the committee. And so there are going to be times when I have to answer these questions in a very general way, as opposed to the kind of detail I might ordinarily provide. But I will do my best to give you a good picture of how the process worked. It was it was a really cool thing to be a part of, and I mean that sincerely. It was really awesome. 
Let's start at the beginning. It's a 16-person committee who decides who's going in. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And it's a, you know, it's a theoretical cross-section of uh, people like me who are labeled as writer historians <laughs> and uh, former Hall of Fame players uh, and executives and one Hall of Fame manager in Bobby Cox. So it was a, it was a, it was a very uh, sincerely energetic group, and um, was really that. That was probably my favorite part of the whole process. I love the Hall of Fame. I love talking about players and their credentials, and everybody in the room brought a, you know a, a point of view and an energy. And, and a sincere level of interest in making the best decisions and having the best debates. It was, again, it was really a, a, a cool thing to be a part of. And everyone was in the room at the same time, all 16 members? Oh, yeah. Well, unless, you know, unless you had to go to the uh, men's room. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Other than that, we had um, the 16 members of the panel. I mean, we could, you know, we could run through who was in the room if you, if you want to, but we had the 16 members of the panel. And then we had three officials from the Hall of Fame, um, Jeff Idelson, uh, who is the president of the Hall of Fame, Jane Forbes Clark, you know, who's, I, I can't recall Jane's exact title, but, you know, her family for a long time has um, pretty much been the heart of the board of directors of the Hall, and John Shestakovsky, who is the uh, public relations vice president, something like that, of the Hall, and when we would have questions about, you know, certain moments in, in somebody's career or incidents or wh whatever, uh, he was there to help us research them and report on specifics. One of the things that uh, I know is true with this committee as well, just like the writers on the BBWAA ballot have a cap as to the amount of players you can vote for, I believe you have a cap in this room as well. Is that true that you are limited to voting for up to four players? Yeah, they, you know, there's a rule of 10 on the writer's ballot. There's a rule of four on all these veterans committee ballots. And I mean, I just want you to think about that because, you know, everyone whose name was on our ballot had a case and was a worthy candidate and you could only vote for four. So there's 16 people casting a vote and you can only fill out four lines on your ballot. You know, if you think about the principle in Hall of Fame elections and all elections that every vote counts, the weight of knowing that every vote I had to make count when I filled out those four names was immense. You know, I'm, I'm probably a big hall kind of guy anyway, and I think it's safe to say I had more than four names I would have voted for if I had been allowed, but, you know, the hall believes has long believed, continues to believe, that there should be a limit on the number of people we can vote for. Uh, my personal view is that it's not the limit on the number of names that makes the Hall of Fame so exclusive. It's the fact that you've got to get 75% of the vote that guarantees it's going to be exclusive. You know, if you got 70% of the vote in a presidential election, they would call it a landslide. And if you get 70% in a Hall of Fame election, they say, well, better luck next time. 
That's exactly that's exactly right. And yeah, it's very interesting with the uh, with the cap on the writers. I think a few years ago, the uh, Golden Area Committee had a very stacked ballot with many deserving candidates. That was Dick Allen and Minnie Minoso, Louis Tiant and Ken Boyer. I think Marvin Miller might have been on that ballot as well. And there were so many deserving candidates, no one got in. And I think it came out afterwards that every single person in the room thought at least four people were deserving, but no one got in. That's hard. Yeah. Um, you know, the, once upon a time, veterans committees used to vote uh, until somebody got elected. And, you know, they obviously no longer have that. Um, we, there hadn't been a living ex-player elected by any veterans committee before we showed up until two, since 2001. And, there ha- you know, we elected two players. There hadn't been two living players elected by any veterans committee in over 40 years. And so, you know, what happened in our session was, was unique and I think refreshing. How do you actually go through the players on the ballot? Is there someone that's nominating the players or is it just sort of going alphabetically? How do you cycle through the players on the ballot? Our session kind of works like this. Everybody sits around a long table in a conference room and um, we, we went through every candidate on our ballot alphabetically. And so uh, I believe it was Jane who would read out the name and then someone would begin the discussion and we would go from there. Is there only one voting opportunity? And I ask because someone like Ted Simmons missed by one vote. Is there an opportunity at the end to say, oh, Simmons missed by one, but I think he's deserving. Can I, can I change my vote? There is not that opportunity. And, you know, I, I, I have a feeling, I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that if we had then, you know, if they had then read us the results and we had re-voted, he actually would have gotten that 12th vote. Uh, but that's just that's just a guess. It, you know, I, I can I can't speak for how everyone voted, but I did get the sense that there were a lot of people in the room like me. They were trying to read the room. You know, I went in there with the names of people I was virtually certain I was going to vote for, but then the dynamic in the room was such that again that weight of making every vote count had an impact on how I filled out my ballot. How when you get to that last name, you're thinking to yourself, all right, who do I think has a real chance here? Even if I think player X is more deserving, I also I also believe player Y is a Hall of Famer. And so many people in the room seem to think that I'm gonna vote for him player Y instead of player X. And I, you know, I tried to think it through that way. I think others did too. Um, it would really be interesting to see if the results were different if we did get a chance to vote a second time, or future committees get a chance to vote a second time. Um, I shouldn't presume that I'll be on every committee. I think the results would be different. I think that'd be interesting to see, too, especially if you voted for someone and you're like, oh, you find out you're one of two people that voted for him. Okay, well, that's a lost cause. But if you find out, if you think Simmons is deserving anyway, and this happened with with Dick Allen and Tony Oliva, they both missed by one vote a few years ago as well. It's tough. I think people, I think Fergie Jenkins was on that committee, and I remember him saying, I feel like we let everybody down here. I feel like if you're in that position, I I do feel like Simmons even getting 11 for a guy that fell off the BBWAA ballot and his first time on it didn't even get 5%. Him to get 11, that does put him in good shape to get him in the future, though. I mean, you would think so. I, I really do think that that would be a good change, a constructive change for 
um, the Hall of Fame to make in future years is to allow a second vote. Read the results of the you know the top four, five, six finishers, whatever it is, and then give people a chance to vote a second time um, because it, it, that's that makes more sense than trying to read the room and. It really, you know, I really, I, it doesn't want to surprise you if you know me, but I put hours and hours and hours of preparation into the process uh, over the two weeks before I arrived at, in Orlando. And the debates went on for a long time. Um, this is my first time ever doing it, but they told me that they they thought that we spent at least as much time as any previous committee had ever spent, and maybe more. That I mean, that's how much time we spent on every single name. And it really would be frustrating to put all of that energy into it and not elect someone. Um, I'm glad that didn't happen with us, but that can easily happen. I can see how it happens now. If you have a, you know, the if you, that that re, I'm trying to think now that election that you refer to is that the year that the three managers got elected unanimously, uh, right? Cox, LaRusso, Tory. I actually don't think it was, but maybe it was. I don't remember. Maybe, I mean, I, okay, you know what? I think it probably was not. But all right, think about that. You've got the, – the ballot is, is a mix, not just the players, but players and executives, or sometimes players and managers and executives. And all right, so imagine you have a situation where three managers get every single vote of everyone in the room, all 16. Now you've only got a total of 16 votes left. What are the chances of anyone, no matter how deserving, getting 12 of those remaining 16 votes? Um, so, this, so the dynamics of just the process and the limit on how many names you've got uh, to, that you're allowed to vote for really plays into the results. And that's another reason to, that I think, given there's only four names, that voting a second time would be a great suggestion. The other suggestion I would make is to not have managers and executives and pioneers on the same ballot as players. Let that be a separate vote and uh, and take that from there. I think that would help Marvin Miller, who's been on the ballot several times. I do want to ask you about Miller quickly. Miller, from the outside looking in, he's one of the most important figures in baseball history. Hasn't really found any significant traction with getting into the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee. Did come in, I think he came within one vote once, but has slipped since. I'm curious what some of the conversation around Miller was in the room or what your thoughts are on Miller in general. Yeah, I mean, this is one that's a little bit tricky. Um, just in general, uh, I would say that there was acknowledgement all around the room that Marvin Miller was an incredibly significant figure in baseball history. And, you know, for years now, all these different committees have debated whether uh, the way to acknowledge his impact was to uh, elect him to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would say our committee in general was no different in in trying to examine all the permutations of that question. And it's a really complicated question, particularly if you're in management. And, you know, it, it just makes sense that, you know, the, the debate on Marvin was much different than it was on any player. And, um, the point of view of the people in the room, um, writers, players, owners, 
Um, Sandy Alderson, Alderson was on the committee. He spent his career in baseball ops and a s- small time in the commissioner's office. Uh, Bobby Cox was on the committee. Um, it makes sense that the, the opinions on how to acknowledge Marvin's place in baseball history would be just so different. And it's hard. it really is hard to get into specifics, but um, just the makeup of a committee like this inherently makes it difficult for someone like Marvin Miller to get elected. You know, it's just a hard precinct for, for a guy like him to carry. And, I, you know, I say that as, I, you know, I wasn't going to reveal how much time we spent on Marvin until George Britt, who was on our committee, uh, then did at the press conference. So we spent, I, I'm going to say, 45 minutes on Marvin. That's how how long and and spirited the debate was. And, you know, again, it was not, a, it, it was a very constructive conversation. My favorite part about the process was how everyone listened to everyone else, no matter what the point of view. It's a, it's a great way to go about any election, you know? And uh, that was really true in Marvin's case. A lot of listening, a lot of um, really heartfelt, incisive, intelligent um, opinions, just a hard precinct for him to carry. That's all. The last thing I'm going to ask you about the Veterans Committee is how influential were modern metrics? Were people talking about wins above replacement or JAWS or OPS Plus at all in this room? Um, I have to think about what, how much I can discuss this. But I, I, here, let me give you just a sense for how the discussion was was often structured. Um, you know, somebody would read out the name and someone in the room would begin uh, just a general present a, a general framework for that candidate. And at that point, you know, we had my myself, Steve Hurt, just a brilliant guy uh, from the Elias Sports Bureau, who's been a member of these these committees many times, and Bob Elliott, who's a uh, you know a, a Spink Award-winning baseball writer from Toronto. And in, in general, I would say that you could guess, you know, who then chipped in with the 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 numbers, the history, the perspective. Um, you know, I, uh, that's kind of my thing anyway. So you, you wouldn't be shocked to know that I did a lot of that. But then, you know, because we had a lot of baseball people in the room, it was great to be able to throw it out to the room and say, you know, people who didn't vote for this candidate would often cite X, you know, and then you could ask players, owners, uh, a manager, baseball ops people, um, what did you see? You know, what did you see when you played with or against this player, when you opposed this player, when your team was playing this player? And, you know, so we had uh, this incredible uh, array of, of opinions from different perspectives. But, you know, I wouldn't say that modern metrics was a huge part of it. Um, again, I have to think about how I can best describe this, but, you know, I, I, I obviously looked at all that. It's just my thing. And I, I think in general, um, my way of imparting that information to people who you know, may or may not have had a lot of familiarity with it was to say, I'm not going to give you the specific numbers, but I'm happy to. 
you know, but in general, this player over a period of X years was this. And that, that was kind of a way to talk a common language and yet not cause anyone who wasn't familiar with modern metrics to have their eyes glaze over, you know, and, you know, there, I, I do recall a conversation about one specific player where, um, someone in the room, uh, from the baseball side actually said to me, what do the metrics say about this? And so we had a little discussion of it then, but in general, I mean, we were all trying to speak a common language. So, when you have a language that not everyone in the room speaks, you have to make adjustments. Is that an okay way to describe it? I think it was great. Well, thank you. I think that was a good uh, look into how that process works. I do want to shift focus to a little bit to talk about your regular ballot. You've been voting for the Hall of Fame for a long time. And last year, after the results were, in, or were announced, you wrote a column saying you already know who you're voting for this year. I, I didn't write that. I wrote a column, <laughs> I wrote a column saying... Uh, you thought this ballot was interesting. Wait till next year, you know. But I didn't. I, I did say from the outset when I wrote the column, I would not promise that this would be my actual ballot. It was a, you know, it was a. I, I would say that most of that ballot will be what I will actually fill out. I'm still agonizing over it, but that was not my. That's. I'm, I'm going to say that's almost certainly not going to be the ballot that I present. Okay, I'm done. The ten that you listed on that uh, in that column <laughs> yeah. were Bonds yeah. and Clemens. Those guys were pretty good. Vlad, Hoffman, Chipper, Edgar, Musina, Schilling, Tommy, and Viskel. And of course, I want to ask you about Viskel. Tell me why <laughs> yeah. you you're do. a yes on Omar Viskel. Well, again, I'm not promising that I'm going to vote yes on Omar Viskel when I actually fill out my ballot. But the reason I included Omar in that column was... You know, I I try to think about the Hall of Fame, Ross, from every perspective. And I totally get the reason that some folks are so adamant that Omar is not a Hall of Famer, can't possibly be a Hall of Famer. I totally understand the case against. But I wanted to make sure that there are people out there who understand the case for Omar. And so... I, I tried to go through it in a methodical way, even though I only had a, a, a few paragraphs to do that. Um, Omar is uh, is a guy who won eleven gold gloves, and while you know modern metrics, even though some of those are retroactive, right, we're trying to apply old data to modern metrics. Modern metrics would tell us convincingly. Uh, Omar Vizquel is not Ozzy Smith, and anybody who thinks he is is not doing the homework. But those gold gloves do tell us what the rest of the sport thought of Omar Vizquel as a defender, right? Because coaching staffs, coaches and managers voted on those gold gloves. And what's that tell us? It, it tells us they did not want the ball to be hit to him. He was a guy who was going to catch it. Uh, he was he was going to do everything right. He was extremely creative. Uh, he was a guy with uh, immensely high baseball IQ. And so what his peers thought of him tells us something. Um, then there's my favorite Omar Vizquel stat ever. Um, in his career, he had three seasons in which he played 140 games or more. 
and made five errors or fewer. Three. Um, at that time, all the other shortstops since 1900 combined had three. So there's Omar three, everyone else who ever played that position three. Most sure-handed shortstop in the history of baseball. And I, I recognize that he didn't. He did that without the you know the the range, the total chances, the the incredible impact on the game that Ozzie had. But nevertheless, uh, that is a, an incredible stat. And then the offensive part of it: two thousand eight hundred seventy-seven hits is a lot of hits, man. Um, among players in in the history of the game whose primary position was shortstop. The only one who had more, best if I recall this right, was Derek Jeter. And the the number of players in history with as many hits and as many gold gloves as Omar Vizquel consists of Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, and that's the end of the list. So if I were to just read you that and you didn't delve into any of the other metrics, wouldn't you say there's a Hall of Fame case to be made for this guy? Sure. I think, you know, and... I think part of the problem with the Viscal, and this is we saw this a lot with the Jack Morris stuff as well, is that there was a lot of antagonism on both sides of that debate. And I look at Viscal, I'm a no on Viscal for the same reason I was a no on Morris, in that I, I don't like how little separation from average there was with them. I think they were both very good players for a long time, and that's hard to do, but I don't like that they were never truly great, and that their separation from average, you see that in Viscal with his wins above average, it's below 10, so is Morris's. Morris's ERA, his ERA plus is 105, 5% better than league average. Vizquel's career OPS plus is, I think, 15% below league average. That's not good. And we know that his case isn't about his bat, it's about his glove. And it, I think it's more than that for some people. I think he's so well-respected, he's seen as like an ambassador. But what I don't like is, I don't want to, I'm fine with Morris going into the Hall of Fame, and I'm fine if Fiskel goes into the Hall of Fame, even if I personally wouldn't put them in. Because I look at it like, look, if Morris goes in and that helps Schilling or Musina, I'll make that trade one for one any day. And if Fiskel going in helps Bobby Gritch, or it helps Lou Whitaker, it helps some of the other uh, middle infielders who have been overlooked, I think that's great. I'm fine making those deals because I think the floor has already been set for the Hall of Fame. So many of the, the, the bottom players, the worst players, quote-unquote, in the Hall of Fame at every position are already established, and we're not going to hit. We're not going to have another Tommy McCarthy go into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Omar Vizquel is still significantly better than Tommy McCarthy. We're not going to have Rabbit Marinville go into the Hall of Fame again. There's still a significant divide between those type of players and modern players who played in the peak of the game going in who may fall below. I give much more, uh, much more credence to wanting modern players represented. We know that they're underrepresented. That's part because of the PED issue, but it's part because there's been a shift in what we think of borderline. If Vizquel goes in, hey, good for him. It's not going to happen this year, obviously, but I want guys to have more separation from average than he had, and that's why I, I'm a no on him. Yeah, well, I'm going to try to bring this back full circle. Um, one of the things that I learned from being a part of the... Um, the Veterans Committee, the Modern Era Committee, was that we all draw that line uh, of greatness in different places, um, in different ways, with different perspectives. And that's okay. We're allowed to define it in our own way. It's why we have these debates. It's why we have these 
elections. And everybody can't be the best of the best. If the Hall of Fame, if the definition of a Hall of Fame shortstop was you had to be Hannes Wagner or Cal Ripken, um, then we'd have two shortstops in the entire Hall of Fame. Correct? You know, and it's, you can go around the diamond, and it's that way at every position. Um, you know, there was a, there was a point in our, um, in our discussion at the Modern Era Committee in which we actually got into this, that, you know, there, there are certain players who come along, um, you know, the Willie Mazes of the world, and everybody knows they're Hall of Famers, and the writers vote them in. But that is not the Hall of Fame standard. You know, somebody joked that if um, Willie Mays was how you define the Hall of Fame, there'd be f- only four players in the entire Hall of Fame. Because <laughs> he's one of the four best players who ever lived. And so the, the, the line is lower than that. And, um, you know, this is not the Pro Football Hall of Fame where they elect, what, six players every year. This is always going to be a really exclusive group. But the fact that I might present a case for Omar Vizquel to ensure that the debate goes on, I think is worthwhile because there are, I mean, we see all the time players who do not get elected on the first ballot and then the debate eventually comes around to them. Um, you know, I, so we're looking at a situation where history does repeat itself. Omar Vizquel is the Jack Morris of his Hall of Fame generation. I think Edgar Martinez is going to turn into the Tim Raines, right? Where he, be, where he becomes um, the, the hot sabermetric candidate. And we'll see if that rides him in. But, you know, we have lots of different kinds of candidates. And that's why we have lots of different kinds of debates. And that's why we wind up with a, with a deeper pool of Hall of Famers than some people would like. But I think you just said it well. It's okay. It's really okay. If, if Omar Vizquel ever does get into the Hall of Fame, nobody be, will be sad. Nobody should be embarrassed. Um, there'll be a lot of happiness about it. And not everybody will agree. What's wrong with that? That's what America is all about, pal. Your sentiment is exactly right. If he gets in, I'll be happy for him. Good for him. I do want to ask you, Quickly, in one of your books, I think it was your Wild Pitches book, which was a collection of your uh, pieces that you had done at ESPN, You, the first one you did, the first piece in there was about the Hall of Fame. And you talked about how you love the Hall of Fame, but you never wanted to make your ballot political. You never wanted to vote for someone and then have to take them off unless you really thought that they were undeserving. You didn't want to play any games with people, whether it was their first time on the ballot or their 10th. If you thought someone was deserving, you wanted to be able to vote for them. And then the ballot got too crowded. And too many people came onto the ballot that were deserving. And I'm curious if you let, if you see how votes are going in the tracker and you in Ryan Thibodeau's tracker and you let that influence your vote. I look at it right now. We have almost 70 votes in there. And Johan Santana doesn't have one. No one has voted for Johan Santana. Now, we were talking about Fiskel. I think it's clear with Fiskel this year. Two things we know with Fiskel. He is going to get enough to stay on the ballot. He's also not going to get enough to get in. Do you let something like that influence your opinion? Do you say, well, Fiskel's not going in, nor is he going to fall off. Maybe I vote for Santana just to see if I can get him to get to 5%. Right. We, I mean, you summarized that piece in that book very well because um, I, I, all I ever wanted to do as a voter was look at the names on the ballot and say, was this player a Hall of Famer or not? 
And if I answered yes, vote for that player every single year. And that's a really sane way to vote, especially compared to the way some people vote. You know, I never wanted to say, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., I'd like to see him go in alone, so I'm not going to vote for anybody else this year. I'm, not, I was n- I'm never going to do that. I'll never vote that way. But now I have reached a stage I never reached uh, that where I have more than 10 players I want to vote for. And so I feel like I'm forced to use the, uh, the bottom of that ballot um, for reasons like you just described. It's ballot management. You know, I have a group of players that I strongly believe are Hall of Famers that I'm going to vote for. And then the rest of the ballot, you know, some years it's one name, some years one slot, some years it's two slots, some years it's three or four. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to make a call, much like I made in the Modern Era Committee. I'm trying to read the room. Um, and I, I hate having to vote that way. I hate it, but you know, it's, it's the Ryan Thibodeau exit polls are really useful now for that, because if I'm assured that this guy's not going to get elected, but he's not going to fall off, that puts him in one category. Um, if it's somebody who I think has a real chance of election, um, but has never, you know, been, but it's been wallowing around for four or five or six or seven or eight years. That puts him in another category. Uh, there was a year where I looked at first timers on the ballot that I was, I wanted to vote for. I was terrified might get lopped off, and I, you know, I, I made it a point to vote for them. It's I, I hate having to vote this way, Ross, but I feel like I'm forced into it by that rule of ten, and I. I really don't see that rule changing, so it's the way I'm I'm stuck with voting. I just would, I just think it'd be so much of a better process if uh, this is a Derek Gould suggestion. Derek, the uh, of course Cardinals in St. Louis was the president of the Baseball Writers Association uh, a couple of years back. Uh, his suggestion was let's just vote yes or no on every player. I would I would be so grateful if the Hall would allow us to do that, but I, I don't see that happening. You've been listening to Jason Stark. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JasonST. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Happy holidays to you and your family. Ross, you too. Thank you for having me. Always one of my favorite topics. The Hall of Fame. It's great.